Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. We continue our conversation with X-15 historian Michelle Evans, author of the book, The X-15 Rocket Plane, Flying the First Wings into Space. In part two of our interview, we get into why the X-15 program was such an important milestone in the history of aviation, while we focus on some of the more gee whiz aspects of the space plane. We ask Michelle to recount any favorite pilot stories, and one about Neil Armstrong just might surprise you. We'll get into details on pilot selection, how Scott Crossfield was the first to fly the X-15, and then we'll conclude the episode with a couple of stories about the eighth X-15 pilot and later astronaut, Joe Engel. For our audience who may be less familiar with the X-15 program, and I know this this is kind of an impossible task in, in the scope of this evening's discussion, but is it possible that you might be able to briefly summarize some of the salient accomplishments of the X-15 program? At the very least, you know, again, what it was, major accomplishments. And in addition to that, I'd like to know what some of your favorite, what I would call aha factoids about the X-15 are. <laughs> okay, I'll give that a shot. Well, the X-15 was the first and so far only hypersonic research vehicle that had a human pilot at the controls. Uh, it was created in the mid-1950s originally to study the idea of hypersonic flight, uh, which means above Mach 5, about 3,800 miles per hour approximately. And they were looking at the effects of heating and aerodynamic control. This thing was scheduled to go up out of the atmosphere. So how are you going to control this thing in the space environment? Is a pilot going to be able to control the vehicle to make a pinpoint landing back at a specific spot, in this case at Edwards Air Force Base in the Mojave Desert of California? And the experiment was the vehicle itself. Uh, and also the pilots, could they maintain control in the weightless environment of space, all these kind of things. So it was a double experiment between the pilots and the, and the X-15 itself. Uh, what the X-15 accomplished over nine years of flight from 1959 to 1968 was that it was able to fly up to 67.1 miles high, 354,200 feet, uh, Joe Walker in August of 1963, which is about, oh, 10 times higher than a commercial airliner. They were also able to fly at over Mach 6, actually Mach 6.70, 4,520 miles an hour on October 3rd, 1967 with pilot Pete Knight. So those were the kind of accomplishments that it did. Uh, the research it did was was really phenomenal. To this day, no other manned vehicle has ever achieved the same kind of speeds as the X-15. It wasn't until 2004 
that the altitude of the X-15 was finally surpassed by Spaceship One, Burt Rattan Spaceship One, uh, in October of, of 2004. And boy, he was excited about that. He was a real fan of the X-15, and when he could break their altitude record, that was something else. Yeah, it's a biggie. Yeah. And so many people, they think, you know, fastest plane, first thing that comes to mind is the SR-71. The SR-71 only did about half of what the X-15 could do as far as speed goes. And the X-15, to handle the high heat, it had to be made out of uh, the primary component was Inconel X, a nickel alloy, which ended up achieving over 1,350 degrees and surviving that without melting which is pretty toasty. So that kind of research was something that had never been done before, and it's never been done since. That's what's really terrible is, you know, this this flew back last in 1968, and we haven't done anything better than that since, which I find terrible myself. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, we really went in a different direction. Oh, yes. Wow. I have a question about Inconel, actually. I thought I had okay. I thought I had read recently that there was a lot of difficulty initially in working with Inconel to for the frame because it's a very brittle alloy. I don't know if I would call it brittle. I mean, it would certainly be hard to work with because it's very hard. Going back to the SR-71 analogy, it was uh, made out of titanium. Mm -hmm. uh, they use titanium in the low heat areas on the X-15. <laughs> so, yeah, the Inconel is an interesting alloy, but yeah, I definitely wouldn't call it brittle because it needed to stand up to those kind of G-forces, temperatures, things like that. It had uh, had to go through such a flight regime that if it had been brittle, I think it would have definitely fallen apart under the types of flight environment that the X-15 was flying in. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions from Emily, actually. This is kind of related to these sort of factoids, but a little bit of a different twist. And her question is, was there any story about any specific X-15 pilot that impacted you more than others? Oh, there's so many stories. The thing that's probably one of the most surprising is Neil Armstrong, okay? Mm -hmm. Neil Armstrong was the seventh pilot on the X-15. Of course, everybody knows he was the first man to land on the moon, so he's the best pilot that there ever was to be able to accomplish that. And yet during his seven flights on the X-15, especially toward the end of his time on that program, he started messing up really bad. I mean, to the point where Paul Bickle, his boss, and also a very good friend of Neil's, was right on the verge of firing Neil from the flight test program because he was screwing up really terribly. Uh, one of those incidents was shown in the first few moments of the movie First Man, although they did a really, really terrible job of showing it. Um, I can get into that later if you want. He wasn't really paying attention to his job. And in that case, he ended up watching one meter. He was trying to maintain four Gs on the loading of the X-15 and ended up, as he was re-entering, pulling up so that he ballooned back up out of the atmosphere and ended up flying 
way south of Edwards before he was finally able to drop down enough that he got enough air so he could turn around and come back and just barely, barely made it onto the lake bed at the southern end of Rogers Dry Lake Bed for Edwards. And so he could have easily lost the aircraft in that case. So it's it was very surprising to know uh, the things that he did that he screwed up so badly. And the greatest stories I got about Neil came directly from Paul Bickle. So getting it from his boss was something else. Yeah. Huh. I was under the impression that that was an automatic control system that acted differently than expected. That That's the first time I've heard it put that way. Oh no! It was it was one hundred percent Neil's fault. Uh, as I say, that was that was his test was to maintain the four G's on the airframe, and as he got lower in the atmosphere, he had to start pulling up the nose to be able to maintain that. When at the time he should have said, "Wait a minute! I'm low enough. I need to let off on that four G's." so that I can start my turn on to final to land on the lake bed. And instead, he just fixated on that 4G meter and just kept right on going. So, yeah, he was down over Pasadena in the San Fernando Valley area and stuff before he finally got uh, low enough to turn around and come back over. And if you see the way it is in the movie, it looked like he came back over the San Gabriel Mountains at about 20 feet above the treetops. He was actually about 40,000 feet, so didn't quite clip the trees, but just one of the small problems I have with First Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but the X-15 didn't glide that well, so it was metaphorically right above the trees. Metaphorically, yes, yes. It had, it had uh, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Scott Crossfield was the very first pilot on the X-15. And because of the glide ratio on the X-15, uh, which was very small, about four to one or so, after his flight, he was presented a special award by the Glider Pilots Association. And they presented him with a plaque, and mounted to the plaque was a brick. Nice. And congratulations for your first flight on the X-15. The flying brick. Yeah. Exactly. So it was a flying brick before the space shuttle was a flying brick. <laughs> yes. Well, the space shuttle owes so much to the X-15. Without the X-15, we never would have gotten a successful space shuttle program. I don't know how many of your uh, listeners might remember, but early in the development of the space shuttle program, they were talking about mounting jet engines to this thing so that once it finished reentry, they could pop out these engines, spool up the turbofans, and then they could just fly around wherever they wanted to fly and go into LAX or some other place like that. The guys up at Edwards were just aghast at this whole thing. Paul Bickle sent Milt Thompson on a trip down to Johnson Space Center to, you know, knock some sense into their heads down there. And one of the main things that he accomplished was to show them that the X-15 made 199 flights, and 198 of those were successful. Uh, as I say, we lost Mike Adams. But after the initial boost by the XLR-99 engine, the rest of the flight was all unpowered. You had no other way of moving that vehicle, yet they were still able to put that thing down within, you know, feet of where they anticipated of doing it, even though it was unpowered. And Milt was down there for a couple of weeks and took all the data with him and proved to those engineers that they could do the space shuttle without those stupid jet engines being mounted. 
and they finally dropped it and we were able to have a vehicle that could finally actually place enough payload into space to make it worthwhile gave us the space station and the Hubble and Galileo and so many other things that they never could have carried if they tried to put engines on that thing. Oh my God, I never heard that story. That's really crazy. Mm. Well, you know, speaking of flying, mm. how were these pilots chosen? Now I know like Scott Crossfield was, well, he was, he was a pilot for North American, right? He was not a test yeah. pilot at Edwards. Well, he, he started out at NASA or actually NACA. Okay. He was there for a long time and he saw these X planes flying and he thought that the way that they were the programs were being handled was not really the best way to do it. And so when he saw the X-15 coming along, he was actually one of the instigators of the X-15. If Scott was here today, he would probably say he was the instigator of the X-15. I don't know how true that really is. There's a lot of people who were involved in that process. But he decided that to get that program right, that they really needed to have someone like himself because, of course, these pilots all have really great egos, and Scott was no slouch in that matter. And he quit NACA and said, I'm going to whoever wins the program. And it was Republic and Bell and McDonald and, uh, or Douglas and North American. And eventually, of course, North American won this program. And so he offered himself to North American, and they took him in in a second. So he ended up being there and really shepherded the X-15 through the whole design process, uh, working heavily with Harrison Storms, who ran the program there, to create the vehicle that he knew really needed to be done to get the test points done that they wanted with the X-15. So that's what really got him going. And he also had this idea in the back of his mind that since he knew the X-15 better than any other pilot in existence, that I'm sure that NASA and the Air Force and stuff was just going to let him continue flying the program. He actually proposed the idea of him flying every single mission. And, of course, you've got all these other pilots sitting there from the Air Force, from NASA, from the Navy, uh, saying, uh, no, hello, we're here too. Uh, the Air Force was funding the program. NASA was the manager of the program that uh, uh, was was really running it. And uh, they said, well, you know, you've got to finish the test program, and then it's time for you to leave. So you had the people at NASA and the Air Force who were lined up ready to do this, and they were the top test pilots of the time. There was a guy by the name of Ivan Kinchlow in the Air Force who was initially uh, slotted to be the lead Air Force pilot, and then the lead NASA pilot was Joe Walker. And both of these guys were considered the top in their field, so they were the natural choices by NASA to be the pilots on the program. And then you had other guys up there like Jack McKay and Neil Armstrong at NASA who had also been flying research flights, so they naturally fell in behind uh, Joe Walker. Unfortunately, Ivan Kinchlow was killed in an F-104 accident uh, just a couple weeks after the X-15 rolled out. And so he had to be replaced by his backup pilot, Robert White, and he ended up flying the program and a, a really great pilot. 
So you've got Joe Walker and Bob White, who were the primary record setters on the program very early in the program. Uh, Forrest Peters from, from the Navy did a lot of great work, too, but not nearly what the Air Force and NASA were allowed to do. And then they eventually moved on to other things, and their backup pilots would move into the prime slots, and they would choose somebody else as a backup pilot. And that's sort of the way the program ended up running throughout that whole period. Okay. Yeah, that was that was actually one of my questions about how were the pilots chosen, but they were basically the top of the cream of the crop at the time in terms of test pilot. Right. As uh, Tom Wolf put it, they were the top of the pyramid at the time. Yeah. I do have another question from Emily, and this is specifically about Joe Angle. And her question is, uh-huh. I want to hear any Joe Angle story. Because the guy is a huge personal hero to Emily, and she's sure that uh, you have a repository of hilarious stories. So, uh, so have at it about Joe Engel. Okay, Joe Engel. Uh, first of all, Joe Engel, I have to say, there were 12 pilots on the X-15. He was number eight, and unfortunately, Joe is also the last X-15 pilot out of those 12 to still be alive today. He is the ultimate test pilot. You know, as as I'm sure many of your listeners know, he flew as commander on two space shuttle uh, flights, STS-2 and 51I. Uh, he also was slated to fly on Apollo 17 and lost that slot as lunar module pilot to Harrison Smith because the later program was canceled. Uh, but back on the X-15, he was brought in when Bob Rushworth uh, left the program, and Joe ended up becoming a prime pilot. To give you one of the more interesting stories about Joe is that on his very first flight, he was very elated by how things were going on that flight. And as he was coming back down uh, toward Edwards, uh, as he put it, he was trying to lose some altitude, but I think it was more of a uh, a joyous thing that he was doing, he decided to roll the aircraft. And at that point in the program, the only other person who ever rolled the X-15 was Scott Crossfield. And he pretty much got away with a lot of stuff other guys didn't get. And Joe Engel did this. He didn't really think twice about it. But, of course, you've got all of these instruments in the vehicle that are recording these parameters and rolling the vehicle was not one of the test points. You weren't supposed to do that sort of thing. And it never even dawned on him that, of course, that roll was recorded inside the instruments. And the guys who took the instruments out later were looking at this stuff and they saw this thing going around and going off chart and then coming back on chart. And they thought they had an instrumentation failure. So they passed it up the up the line, and it eventually got to Paul Bickle, and Paul Bickle finally calls Joe Engel in and says, um, pardon me for saying this, but uh, we're not quite sure if you could clear this up for us or not, but did you roll the X-15? And uh, Engel was like, uh, well, uh, uh, well, yeah, I, I needed to lose some altitude, and I felt that was the best way to do it. <laughs> Hadn't he heard of S-turns? Uh No. <laughs> And so uh, Paul was uh, very adamant about telling him, uh, we don't do that on the X-15. That will not be done again in the future. 
And so he got away there for that. As another guy on the X-15 put it, Joe for a while was what was known as being in the Bickle Barrel. <laughs> uh, so he had to watch his step for a bit after that. Uh, but another favorite story of mine for Joe Engel is one where he was still the secondary pilot on the program for the Air Force behind Bob Rushworth. And Rushworth came to Joe one time since Joe was low man on the totem pole and said, you know, we've got uh, Vice President Humphrey is coming to visit Edwards Air Force Base and he wants a full briefing on the X-15. So we're going to have some stuff set up in the hangar, including the aircraft. And we want you to go down, and you're just going to stand there next to the X-15. You don't have to do anything. We just want you to be there. And so Humphrey comes in with his big entourage, and he sits there, and he's looking at the X-15. He's looking at the engine that's there on display. And he asks Joe Engel a question about the X-15, saying, well, uh, how many squadrons of these things do we have? And and Joe was like, uh, 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 I don't know how to talk to a guy like that. And he stammered out some some answer like, well, uh, not too many, sir. And uh, Humphrey is sitting there looking at it. And it's like, oh, well, obviously we need many more of these. So we'll, I'll look into that when I get back to Washington. But poor Joe was just like, like flustered. He didn't know what to do. It's like went to Rushworth afterward. You told me I wouldn't have to say anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he knows how to how to talk to people nowadays. He is great. He goes out and gives uh, probably as many or more X-15 talks than I do. I'm on like number 84 myself, and I know he's out there. One of my most wonderful days ever was when I was brought out to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs a couple of years ago. And Joe and I spent the entire day at the Air Force Academy doing talks about the X-15. I would do a talk, he would do a talk, and we would, you know, bounce back and forth. Uh, we stood there in front of all the cadets in the giant auditorium, both answering questions about the X-15. You, you can't get a much better day than that, I'll tell you. Oh, wow. Yeah, amazing. He, he is one of the most gracious people that I know. He is a national treasure, the repository of space exploration and test flying knowledge that he has just cannot be equaled. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Space 3D. Join us for part three of our interview with X-15 historian Michelle Evans in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.